When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What the red line? The red line. I see the red line as more of uh, people that take the red line. Are, that's my theory, though. Of people that take the red line, is the people that have more money. Because you go into Cambridge, Harvard, and you go in the other way to Madapan, where the big houses are, and people that take the orange line are the poor people. So I don't really care too much about the red line, but. <laughs> um, If they want to leave, they'll let her go, because I don't pay attention to the red line anyway. I don't take that line. So that's not my line. My line is not the red line. Previously in Greater Boston, Leon Stamatis. Well, thought Gemma, that's a decision made at least. Michael needed to find a job. The message was from a woman named Gemma. Michael wasn't Leon, but he'd answered the right phone. At Harvard, the mayor of the red line boards... A rumpled old man in a tweed suit, an eccentric. By the time you receive this letter, I will already be gone. I walk down to the pier to see the ocean. That's where I met the man who owns a submarine. With love, Dimitri. Braintree. Peabody. Haverhill. Lowell. All right. Fall River. Cambridge. I can't say that one without a river. Arlington. Framingham. Newton. Lynn. Worcester. This is Waltham. Quincy. Arlington. Revere, Somerville, Arlington. This is Lemonster, Haverhill, Brookline, Somerville, Cambridge. This is this is this is Greater Boston. This week in Greater Boston, Gemma takes Michael on a tour of the office in Third Sight Media and Environs. The mayor of the Red Line reveals his secret origin story in subterranean mobile communities, and Dimitri writes home about his subaquatic adventures in karaoke and international waters. All of that coming up in Episode 5, Geography Lessons. Dear Editor. Dear Editor. Dear Editor. In the June 2015 issue of Political Prognostication, your numerological analysis regarding the political prospects of the current crop of freshman senators was very revealing. However, in your analysis of Senator Tom Tillis, R. North Carolina, you incorrectly spelled his first name as Tom T-O-M rather than Tom T-H-O-M, which, of course, produces very different results. Rather than three, Senator Till's personal number should be correctly listed as 11. Thank you for your attention to this matter. Samuel St. Eberhauser, Nashua, New Hampshire. Dear Editor. Dear Editor. Dear Editor, this is just to let you know that I am unsubscribing to your worthless rag immediately. Political prognostication used to be a respectable magazine, but your June prediction that Kirk Cameron will never be a serious presidential candidate is such biased nonsense that it reveals your whole Gestapo agenda. You're just another branch of the Democrat Party's libtard propaganda machine. You can rot in hell. Norberta Simmons, Topeka, Kansas. Dear Editor. Dear Editor. Dear Editor. I'm enclosing in this letter an interesting leaf that I found while walking through a nature preserve outside Segundo late last fall. Perhaps you will find it informative. Regards, Ernest Kellerman, Phoenix, Arizona.
Thanks for coming in early today, Michael. Yeah. Mike? Michael. Okay. So I'm going to show you around the office, introduce you around, get you situated with everything you need to know about Third Sight Media. Cool. So So, the first uh, thing you need to know about Third Sight Media is that it is entirely full of shit. All of it. All of us. uh, The magazines are full of shit. The articles are full of shit. The publisher, the editors, the employees, every one of us full of shit. I assume you've taken uh, a look at some of our products, seen the caliber of investigation we engage uh, in, reporting on spectral viewings, numerological prediction, all that sort of uh, thing. And either you already believe in that muck, or you're going to have to pretend to believe in it, but either way, you're going to be full of shit, just like the rest of us. (laughs) So I hope you're okay with that. Second thing, this is my office. If the door is closed, I'm busy, so don't knock. If the door is open, knock anyway. I might still be busy. Mm -hmm. Usually I'm busy, so don't expect much hand-holding. Notice my office has one of the pneumatic tubes that carries messages to the publisher's office. There are a couple of others around, but your office doesn't have one of those. There's a reason for that. You won't have much dealings with him. The tubes are for him to talk to us, not the other way around. Usually he talks to me, and then I talk to you so that he doesn't have to talk to you. Uh, wait. I know how that sounds. The reality is not any different from how it sounds. Okay, well... Down here is your office, which you can decorate if you like, if you want to make yourself feel at home. Yeah, um... I assume you've got an actual home of your own that you'd much rather think of as home, uh, but... Uh, well... Fuck, what do I know? You'll be sharing your office with... Panda Bear Paletti. Uh, And no, before you ask, Panda Bear is not his real name. But it's really how he introduces himself, because he's a hippie New Age dipshit, and also because he thinks it's cute to name himself after an animal so profoundly ill-suited to being alive that it single-handedly disproves the entire concept of intelligent design. But he likes it, so we humor him. Uh, uh, We've got a strict quota of one stupid cutesy nickname per office, though. So you're just Michael. Got it? Yeah, well... Anyway, the two of you will be working closely together as you're on sister publications. Oh, great. Panda Bear edits financial futures, which intersects with issues you'll be covering in political prognostication. So try and get along. Yeah. um... Back this way is the break room. Tables, chairs. Put your name on your lunch. No one will steal it either way because every single person in this office has some stupid artificial dietary restrictions that makes it all but impossible to cater an office lunch event. But I like to see some accountability for the lunches that get left in the fridge all week. Don't leave your lunch in the fridge all week. uh, Either eat it or bring it home or throw it away. This isn't difficult. I don't know why people need it explained to them. Those are the vending machines. Put money in, garbage falls out. There's also a Keurig if you like piss coffee. If you don't like piss coffee, there's a Starbucks downstairs and across the street, or an actual for real knows how to make a cup of coffee coffee shop right around the corner. Uh, I recommend that one. This office is Human Resources. Hello. That's Tyrell Fredericks. Yes, hi, Tyrell. Hello. You'll spend a couple hours with Tyrell later going over all the inane paperwork and irrelevant minutia. So get ready for that. Uh, it's not irrelevant. He might ask you if you want to have a welcome party. Oh, yeah, Say that's... no. Oh, okay. Oh. Down here we have the supply closets. The first closet is the usual stuff. Paper clips, pens, squeezy stress balls. Hmm. We do ask that you not take more than one squeezy stress ball per week, so try and make it last. For a while, we were exceeding all of our squeezy stress ball budgets like crazy, so we had to ask everyone to start self-monitoring. We'd rather not have to put more enforceable restrictions in place, so just be aware how quickly you'll go through them. Uh. You'll need to spend some time familiarizing yourself with the second closet. It contains all the tools of our field, 
Tarot cards, tea leaves, dice, rabbit's feet, that oh. sort of thing. You're yeah, probably um, familiar with some of it, at yeah. least passingly, but it gets pretty esoteric. Well, see, the in-house style guide offers some guidance for pairing divination forms to editorial content topics, what? but there's plenty of room for creativity. The readers love when we pull out some really obscure form to describe and demonstrate, so, so uh, feel free to dig in. Coming back around this way, we have the library. This includes back issues of all of our publications, digital and hard copy, along with the third largest collection of occult and new age texts in New England. Your <laughs> well, <laughs> Ching, your dream dictionaries, your tarot right. reading manuals, all of that is right here. I, I, I don't you should even expect know. to put in a lot of time learning this uh, material. Yeah, that's okay. Our uh, readers are well-versed and insanely pedantic uh, and expect us to be a kind of occult counterpart to Nate Silver with the levels of precise and obsessive analysis we get into. Okay, yeah. Get a detail wrong, yeah. say, three of cups when you mean seven of wands or whatever, and you'll get a hundred angry emails about oh, it. Geez, so well. read, then practice. You can use your office, or if you need to spread out materials, you can book one of the conference rooms. Okay, well. Every Friday, we have a lunchtime demonstration where one of us gives palm readings or phrenological exams or whatever. Um. That rotates through the staff. You'll be at the very end of the rotation since you're new, but you'll want to prepare for it. Maybe, uh... You can sign out materials from the supply closet to work with at home if you want. Make a party of it if you're <laughs> friends with the sort of people who go in for that sort of thing. So that's about it. Welcome to Third Sight Media. Yeah, cool. Yeah. Dear Diary, September 17th. Friends always warn me not to overly trust a single individual, not to mythologize someone in the way that would cripple me if my perceptions turned out to be false. But this fellow at work I wrote about before, the one who smells like turnips freshly pulled from the soil, the one so confident in his identity that he changes his name like he's changing a pair of pleated cockies, he fills my life with such wonder and purpose. I've turned a corner, and it's all thanks to P.B., he listens to me. He respects me. He understands my place in the office. He understands the order I bring to the employees here at TS. He writes me daily, usually to report on his dealings with that party pooper of a woman, the one who refused to let me organize a celebration for her work anniversary. Can you imagine? Who wouldn't want to take pride in their career? No matter, I believe I may have finally filled out the perfect HR report. With PB's documentation in hand, I sent my findings upstairs earlier today. And real change is in the air. Change stemming from my hard work and dedication. I can feel it. I even told PB that I may have altered the report in his favor ever so slightly. And do you know what he did in response? He reached out and stroked my cheek, gently, like a baby would his mother. Oh, to be wanted. To be useful. Tyrell. Professor Paul Montgomery Chelmsworth tried to walk away from tenure. Really, he did. After his accident at Harvard Station, his fall onto the tracks, his public trauma plastered all over the Globe, the Metro, the Herald, that last taking a particular delight in the schadenfreude of a liberal professor stumbling blindly into the path of an oncoming train, he thought that should reasonably put an end to his career. He hadn't even shown up to the tenure meeting. So it came as a terrible surprise when a congratulatory letter on university letterhead arrived in the mail two weeks later. 
he had been granted tenure in absentia. It didn't matter that he'd dodged the meeting. He had filed all the paperwork already, signed all the documents, secured his testimonials, completed his years of service. The meeting was just a formality. And in light of recent events, the committee had decided the formality could be waived. Welcome to your permanent position. And he did mostly like teaching. The classroom part, anyway. The discussions with eager young minds. He figured he'd give it a go. Show up to class. Make a career of it. And he did show up to class with a curriculum of his own devising, an introduction to the sociology of mobile communities. He walked his students through the syllabus he had painstakingly prepared. He began his first lecture, a description of itinerant tent cities during the Great Depression, and, oh God, he'd lost the will to go on before he was even halfway through 1932. This just isn't working this for me. This just isn't working for me, he announced, and walked out of class. There were some murmurs of annoyance, and some murmurs of amusement, and then some of the students, 15 or so, got up and followed him out the door. Chelmsworth continued walking with that small contingent of his class in tow, just around campus at first, engaging students directly, those officially enrolled along with any others he happened to cross. Socratic dialogue. He could be a wandering scholar. He took his lectures to the cafeteria or the swimming pool or the observatory, lecturing to whomever would stand still long enough. The university was not happy about this, but they could never quite find him to tell him so. And so they never even noticed when he took himself off campus entirely, down into the subway. Some of his students still followed him, turning up for flash mob lectures on off-peak commuter trains. The ones who found him passed his class, got the paperwork signed in person after taking in an impromptu dissertation on train board society. There were social strictures here, he argued. Norms of enforced non-engagement, of feigned non-recognition. It was practically the exact opposite of a community, he realized. It was an anti-community, but it was also an anti-community that refused to adhere to its own rules. So long as the train ran as usual, the passengers sat in stone-faced isolation. But any variance from that norm immediately changed them. If the train was delayed, all joined together in griping, sometimes even the conductor offering wry discontent over the intercom. If a novice passenger expressed even the slightest confusion, the nearest passenger would emerge from their shell to offer guidance and directions. If a parent carrying a small child entered a crowded train, a seat would immediately be vacated by some young man who had seemed oblivious in headphones until a needful passenger appeared. If students failed to turn up, that didn't dissuade him. He lectured anyway. He lectured to those about whom he was lecturing. He spoke to the people of their own lives. He became a fixture of the red line, an authority on its quirks and social contracts. And he enforced those contracts when needed, shaming able-bodied passengers when no one rose to allow an elderly or injured or pregnant passenger to sit. He scolded impatient passengers who crowded the door before exiting passengers could egress, mediating disputes before they could escalate into onboard altercations. He intervened once when a drunken cohort in Bruins jerseys harassed a homeless guy who'd been dozing at the end of the train. Go home, they told him. You're stinking up the place for decent people, they told him, oblivious to the Budweiser miasma of their own breath, their own clothes. Get out of here, get a job, get some deodorant. The old man just looked down at his hands, fingers clasped between his knees, and said nothing. Anything he said would get him punched, 
Professor Chelmsworth didn't hesitate. How dare you! How dare you come here with your expectations and edicts! This is not your home. This is not your red line. This is our red line. Where are you going with your sporting costumes, your Bostonian cosplay? Are you going all the way to Alewife? Do you have a car there? In the parking garage waiting for you to take you back to Waltham or Natick? Interlopers! Tourists! Colonizers! You have no rights here. You have no foothold. We welcome you into our space and you repay us with rudeness. You spit on our sofa. You vomit in our vestibule. This is not your red line. This is our red line. And I decree that you are disinvited. Get off my red line. The trio of hockey fans were briefly taken aback, but they were not likely to be put off by a disheveled professor's righteous ranting. And they turned to him, beer and blood in their eyes, ready to tell Professor Chelmsworth just how little they thought of his decree. The first person to stand up behind him was a woman in scrubs who'd boarded at Charles MGH, looking exhausted, but not looking exhausted now. Get the fuck off my red line. The second one up was a beefy, shaved-headed high school kid in a Bruins jersey himself, but no question which side he stood for. Get the fuck off my red line. A young woman in a sharp suit. Get the fuck a guy off my with red dreadlocks line. and an art bag. Get the fuck an old lady pushing a wire line. cart full get, of groceries. Get, 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 all of them trying to get the fuck off my red line. Get the fuck off my red line. When the train stopped next at Porter Square, the commuters circled the hockey fans, crowded them out two full stops early, left them standing on the platform looking confused as they peered in through the windows from the other side of the closing doors. And then everyone returned to their seats. No one bothered to say another word. Not to each other, not to anyone, save Professor Chelmsworth himself who checked on the man at the center of all this, the sleepy-eyed gentleman in tattered clothes who still hadn't looked up from his hands. I'm all right, he said. Thank you. You're a good mayor. Best mayor we ever had. Professor Chelmsworth smiled at that, almost started to laugh. But then he thought about it. Mayor. Yeah. But you can't be mayor if you haven't got a city, he decided. It was time to secede. I'm headed to the state house. How do I get there on foot? Where are you? Here. Um. 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 I'm horrible with street names. Okay, you would walk up. Berkeley Street. Uh, go up, uh, Tremont. So all the way, all the way up. You would walk all the way to the lobby, get out, and then... I'm not sure if the street is Appleton. Keep going. It's gonna, uh... Um... You go to... You walk to, um... And you're gonna stay on it and go, it's gonna turn into Charles Street. I forget, you, you make a left on one of the streets. I forget where the, what the name of the street is. I don't know the street. But where are we going? When you go down that street right there, you would go over there. I go by landmarks. 
So I'll be great for cross country. Yeah, I suck at giving directions. Do your best. Park Street. <laughs> I don't know. So just get to Park Street. Yeah. You go to. You walk to. Um. I I I literally use a GPS every time, or I just like go by. So I don't. I can't read street signs, so I just go by visual. So you go past the Washington Monument, <laughs> past Niagara Falls. Straight down to um. Um. And then you keep walking straight. But you don't know how to get to Park Street here. Red line. Make a left at Boston. And you watch out for some lights because it's one light that's really crazy because it's where the mass pike goes. And then you keep walking down. If you keep walking down, yo. You take that left onto no, sorry, right onto Clarendon Street and walk straight up. And make a left at Boston. Okay. And eventually, and and eventually, you'll hit Canada. Dear Leon, you must be wondering how it is possible that I can write to you from aboard a submarine. I would imagine that even receiving this letter will make you doubt my adventures, but let me reassure you, I am exactly where I say I am, far beneath the water's surface inside an iron vessel searching the ocean floor. But our Captain Starkey believes strongly in the importance of crewmen sending handwritten notes to their loved ones, and so he has established an elaborate system for realizing this goal. He has stocked the submarine with a supply of writing paper and pens, as well as a high-definition flatbed scanner for digitizing our personal notes. But the captain is not content with photographic duplicates of our handwriting. He submits all the files via satellite to an expert forger he has stationed on the mainland. This man recreates our letters in true ink on paper, and in our exact individual hands. He then addresses and stamps them and posts them off to our families. That is what you have in your hands now, Leon. Not the actual letter that I have written to you, but an exact duplicate of it, created by a professional handwriting imitator named Willard Maltby. This is just one example of the remarkable lengths to which Captain Starkey has gone to ensure the comfort of his crew aboard the submarine. I can see why he views this as necessary. This is not a military vessel. Although some significant portion of the crew have naval backgrounds, they are all now civilian employees. They owe their captain no loyalty save what loyalty he pays for. He pays them well, but still he must also see to their comfort and contentment aboard ship if he is to keep them focused on achieving his goals. And when your goal is to find the lost city of Atlantis with the aid of a skeptical crew, ensuring loyalty takes a bit of extra effort. And it does seem that I am the only member of the crew who signed on out of a genuine interest in the mission itself. Oh, some of them believe in it, certainly. The odd sailor who claims to have seen merfolk swimming alongside fishing trawlers off the coast of Greece, or old attendants who have spotted strange trident-stamped coins in the private quarters of past captains. But even the believers have no interest in finding the city itself. If they wanted to be found, we wouldn't have to look so hard, says one. 
They know our history, says another. They know what it means to be discovered by white men in boats. But just last night, Captain Starkey arranged a party for us, providing not just alcohol, but a state-of-the-art karaoke rig. Nika would have adored the show, all of these rough men and women so eager to get up in front of an audience and sing pop songs and ballads in a baffling concoction of languages. It's amazing to hear a trio of Russian sailors sing Oh Danny Boy in Japanese to the delight of Irish and Japanese observers alike. This was followed by a Canadian singing Material Girl in Spanish, then two Americans performing Oh Canada in German. The evening peaked with a quartet of Japanese and Finnish sailors positively killing it with a rendition of Back in the USSR performed entirely in Esperanto. I couldn't imagine how this performance was even possible. How did these sailors all happen to have such knowledge of each other's languages, each other's music? They laughed at my marveling. We do this every year, said one of the Finns. This was their seventh voyage and their seventh karaoke competition. The team of Finns and Japanese were declared this year's winner by unanimous vote, and Captain Starkey awarded them a fine bottle of whiskey. An hour later, most of the crew were passed out in their bunks, save the few who had missed the party because they were on shift and sober in case of emergency. Only Captain Starkey and I were left, enjoying the first opportunity we'd had since setting out to talk about our true reasons for being here, in this place so far from ordinary life. I told him about you, and how you had no interest in anything unknowable how the least bit of true evidence would turn you around completely. That's what I'm after, I told him. A way to introduce Leon to the satisfaction of wonder. He laughed like it was the most absurd plan he had ever heard. It was only then that I finally asked him his own goal. It's the same as any man who goes exploring, he said. When I find Atlantis, I'll make my fortune. I was shocked. I know I can be naive at times, but could he really do all this just for money? But you must already have a fortune, I pointed out. You own a submarine. You pay an entire crew. Well, yes, sort of, he said. I had a fortune, but I spent it on a submarine. He shrugged. We occasionally find some worthwhile salvage, an old sunken galley in our cargo ship. I keep very little of that. Mostly, I use it to keep the crew coming back each year. They're happy, though. Even if I never find Atlantis, I'll be able to say I gave a dozen old sailors a comfortable last leg in their careers. That's worth something, I think. I took myself to my quarters after that, feeling deeply conflicted. Starkey had dampened my enthusiasm for our shared voyage. I thought I had found in him a kindred searcher, rather than a mere hobbyist and speculator. It is not the sort of company one hopes for in the defining moments of one's life, as the discovery of a lost civilization must be. Not for the first time, I found myself wishing Nika had joined me at my outset. I miss her motivating energy, as much as I miss your critical skepticism. Both are tools whose lack I feel sharply. My quartermate, one of the Canadians, Claude Beaudry, inquired about my dilemma using some strained maritime pun, perhaps something along the lines of What's troubling your waters? I confessed my concern over the captain's cynical motivations. Well, that's nothing to worry over, Claude assured me. We're never going to find it. As Claude was one of the men who had expressed certain belief in the Lost City's existence, I was surprised by his pessimism about our chances. 
Well, that's easy, he said. Just think about what it is we're looking for. Atlantis, I replied, as we all knew what our goal was. Now, think about where we're looking for it, he pushed, as though this were the pivotal point. I couldn't see what he was getting at. We were looking under the ocean, of course. Yes, he said. But which ocean? Leon, I tell you, I have never felt such a fool in my whole life. We set sail from Oregon. My own geography has never been as strong as yours, so you have probably already reached the conclusion I only just made. You probably realized it ages ago. We have been looking for Atlantis in the Pacific. We are in the wrong ocean. I will write again soon with love, Dimitri. Greater Boston is written and produced by Alexander Danner and Jeff Van Driesen with recording and technical assistance from Mark Harmon. You can support Greater Boston and gain access to behind-the-scenes production updates by donating as little as $1 per episode to our Patreon campaign. In order of appearance, this episode featured Lydia Anderson as Gemma Linzer Coolidge, James Oliva as Michael Tate, Arun Sanuti as Tyrell Fredericks, Alexander Danner as the narrator, James Capobianco as the mayor of the Red Line, Ben Flamenhaft as the homeless man, and James Johnston as Dimitri Stamatis. Also featuring Mike Linden, Sam Musher, and Jeff Van Driesen as letters to the editor. Interviews recorded with Greater Boston residents. Charlie on the MCA is performed by Emily Peterson and Dirk Tiedi, and Spanish Ladies by Adrienne Howard, Emily Peterson, and Dirk Tiedi. Drum tracks by Jim Johansson. Some sound effects and music used from public domain and Creative Commons sources. Episode transcripts will be posted online at greaterbostonshow.com. If you enjoy Greater Boston, help spread the word by rating us on iTunes. Greater Boston is written in part at the Writers' Room of Boston, a nonprofit workspace for Boston-area writers. Find out more at writersroomofboston.org. Because Boston really is the uh, uh, greatest walking city. Everything was in like a four or five mile radius. You can't tell me how to walk. I can't, no. <laughs> okay. The Fable and Folly Network, where fiction producers flourish. Broadcasting, this is Roger Bergato Fisher, communications, something, moon base, wherever. You guys can sort out the next thing. I need to get the rover checked and loaded. Jung? On it, boss. Excuse me? If communication still makes a difference at this point in the plot, if we can keep this base or this moon together long enough to be a thing. I changed my direction. I worked my way down. I took those scraps... The bits they'd forgotten about are thrown away, and I built my own place. Still inside, but within the shadows. All my thoughts, my hopes, all of my heart is on a makeshift rocket hurtling towards us with the most precious of cargo. We'll definitely deserve a celebration. Not like yours. You and your boy down there? I hope he's got a private room waiting. It'll be enough to be close again. Ah, meu amado.
when I have Alex back in my arms. Maybe then I can think about resistance. We've kept the corporations at arm's length longer than most. Well, whatever you're building, here or wherever, I'm in. Any way we can help. It feels like we're approaching the closing stage of this journey. The final stop. But either way, it's been one hell of a story. And either way, it ends with Alex. Moonbase Theta Out, the final season. Broadcasting on your podcast feeds starting August 14th. For early access, join us at patreon.com slash monkeymanproductions. Moonbase Theta Out.